0: Hi and this is the Physics High podcast. A quick quiz. Do you A. want to be inspired by science communicators? B. want to learn all about science education? C. want guidance on your scientific journey? Well how about D. all the above? Well today my guest is Abigail Freeman and Abby has one of the coolest jobs in science in my humble opinion. She gets to drive rovers across Mars. Now she's a research scientist at JPL or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is part of NASA and is based in Pasadena, California and she's currently the Deputy Project Scientist at the Mars Science Laboratory and with a background in planetary science and geology, she and her team is investigating the climate and geology of Mars through one of the active rovers on Mars and in this case the Curiosity, which has been there since 2012. She is also a passionate communicator of science devoting her time to speak to high school students, budding astronomers, and the general public alike. And what you'll find as I chat with her is that she's not only passionate, but also a gifted communicator of science. Welcome, Abby. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. I assume at a, a party, you might introduce yourself you, your job entails driving rovers across Mars, which is clearly an, one of the coolest jobs that you could have in science, in my humble opinion. But i was sure that your job is far bigger than that. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on and what you do?
1: Yeah, I I think it's a pretty cool job. And when I have to describe it in one sentence, I do say that I get to drive rovers on Mars. Um, But uh, more broadly, I'm what's called a planetary scientist um, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, in Pasadena, California. And uh, part of my job is helping to drive rovers on Mars. I'm the deputy project scientist for the Curiosity Mars rover. So I get to work with the science team and the engineering team and and try to figure out how to best do science with the rover. And then I actually get to help guess more backseat drive it, Um, you know, work with the engineers, decide where we want to drive, what measurements we want to make, what rocks we want to zap with our laser, and uh, then be a research scientist and take all of that data and try to interpret it and understand what it all means in terms of the history of Mars, um, how its climate changed over the past 4 billion years, why its climate changed, um, was Mars ever a habitable place? Was there ever life on Mars? These are kind of the really big questions that I'm trying to answer with my research with the rovers, with Mars orbiters, and then with other fun laboratory and sometimes even field analog uh, investigations.
0: Now, your work is specifically, at your, you, as you stated, a planetary scientist. Before we, we talk about the specifics of Mars and so forth, uh, what a planetary scientist actually do?
1: Yeah, it's such a cool science. It's kind of a smorgasbord of a whole bunch of different kinds of science. Um, It's geology, it's biology, it's physics, it's chemistry. Um, But it's a term that basically encompasses the study of planets and how they work. And it can range anything from how planets form um, to the the way that they evolve and differentiate the geophysics of them to the chemistries on their surface and how different compounds come to be um, to looking for life. And, you know, it's all all of these studying the planets, mostly in our own solar system, but some people study planets around other stars um, to kind of just figure out how they work.
0: And your background, particularly your university or college work in geology. So your specific area of interest is the geology of planetary science. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So my, my favorite aspect is geology. You know, let's get down to planets that have rocky surfaces and let's get our robotic boots dirty and look at the rocks and try to understand what we see in the rock record preserved today, and how that gives us clues to what the planet was like in the past. Um, so it's a geologist, but it's a special kind of geologist because we can't actually get to these places, you know, with our our actual boots on the ground and our hand lenses out. So how do you make these sorts of measurements completely remotely with robots, with satellites, with rovers? Um, and so it's it's a it's a way of doing geology.
0: As we stated, Mars is the place where you're working at the moment, figuratively speaking. Why Mars?
1: Great question. I like to give three different reasons why I think Mars is super cool. Um, The first reason is probably the one most people have heard of is this idea that maybe there was, you know, once life on Mars. We know Mars today is very cold. It's very dry. Um, life needs liquid water. There's none of it on the surface. There might be places underground where life lives, but we know Mars about 3 billion years ago had conditions that would have been much warmer and much wetter. And we know that all of the ingredients that life needs were present. And so it's a really exciting question to ask. If all the ingredients were there, did life actually arise on Mars? Was there once life on Mars? And the implications of that is if the answer is yes, then, you know, life is probably a pretty prevalent thing, you know, in our own solar system and then by extension throughout the universe. And so, wow, wouldn't that be profound? Um, But beyond that, I think Mars is really cool because it has a very unique rock record. Um, Mars, it turns out, has a lot of really, really old rocks. Something like 50 percent of its surface is older than three billion years old. And we don't really have rocks like that, that old on earth. There's little places, there's some places in Western Australia, for example, that are really old, but most of the really old rocks on earth have been recycled due to plate tectonics. Mars doesn't have that. So Mars has this really ancient record and it gives us the opportunity to understand what planets are like really in the earliest time in their history. What were conditions like three billion years ago, three and a half billion years ago? What happened as the magnetic field evolved and the atmosphere evolved? And we can answer those questions at Mars. and I think that's fascinating. Um, the third reason, of course, I think Mars is so cool is because you know hopefully it's going to be a destination for humans one day. And we need to study it now to understand the kind of challenges that humans exploring its surface might face and what sort of resources they might be able to use and basically how they would be able to live and explore the planet.
0: Now, let's say we have a budding geologist that knows a little bit about geology in terms of uh, understanding rocks and rock processes and so forth. Tell us a little bit about how uh, Curiosity goes about measuring and giving you the information that allows you to make some of those um, uh, understandings of Mars geology. That's a
1: great question. I think the first piece of information we, we get are the images, you know, what do the rocks look like? Um, What color are they? What, what kind of rock are they? Are they igneous volcanic rocks? Are they sedimentary rocks? Um, Going further, we can get up close to them and we can look at their textures down to the micron. And there's things about their textures that tell us about how they formed. You know, if you have a rock, that is filled with really big rounded pebbles, well, that probably formed in an environment like a river. If you have a rock that is uh, very fine grained and has a lot of really thin, very flat layers, well, maybe that sort of rock formed in something like a lake environment, or maybe it was ash that was settling out of the atmosphere. Then we can go beyond that and say, what's the composition of the rock? You know, What elements are present in the rock? And then how are those elements arranged? What kind of minerals do they make? And it turns out different processes lead to different rock compositions. When you have water, for example, that interacts with a rock, it leaves a chemical fingerprint behind and the kinds of fingerprints it leaves behind tells you something about the water. Was it hot water? Was there a lot of water? Was it really acidic water? These are all things we can answer by knowing the composition. Um, curiosity goes even further in understanding rock compositions with a special instrument that we actually have inside the rover that can not only look at the minerals that are there, but it can look at whether or not there are organic compounds in these rocks, um, which is basically a fancy word to say any kind of molecule that contains carbon. And that's exciting because we know one of the ingredients that life needs is a source of carbon. And so with Curiosity, we've found these organic compounds. We found what would be the building blocks of life in the rock record, in addition to what we've learned about the past environments that were present.
0: I'm sure there's a teacher listening, hopefully, thinking, how does it do that? How does it measure carbon?
1: Yeah, well, the the carbon itself comes from what's called a mass spectrometer. Um, And what we do is we take the rock, we, we drill into a rock, we collect some powder, and then we put the powder inside of the instrument and we basically bake it. We heat it up in an oven to very hot temperatures, hundreds of degrees centigrade. And we can measure the gases that are released from the rock as we cook it. And then we can put those gases through our mass spectrometer to give us the molecular weight of the compounds in the gas. And we can use that to for what compounds are present.
0: Now, uh, obviously Curiosity landed in 2012 and it's done a good distance of driving tell us some of the highlights like that were really exciting in terms of the information you found since since curiosity got there
1: yeah um i think the biggest most exciting thing we found is that this big hole that we landed in uh, 150 kilometer diameter gale crater was once filled with a lake Um, And what we found is that the lake probably had water that was, you know, basically water you could drink, um, you know, very neutral pH, very drinkable, not very hot. And as we've climbed this mountain of material that's in the middle of Gale Crater, we haven't left the lake deposits. We've climbed higher and higher and higher on this mountain of rock that the lake left behind, and we're still seeing lake deposits. So what this tells us is that the lake was probably around for millions of years, um, which is really exciting because not only was there environment that would have been habitable, it was probably pretty long lived, um, which is important if you're thinking about whether life could have taken hold and, and made a community there. Um, We've also discovered a lot of interesting things outside of the rock record, too. We've made a lot of measurements of the environment around Gale Crater. Uh, just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were doing some wintertime gazing at the night sky as the sun set. These amazing clouds came out made of carbon dioxide and water ice. And they're just these beautiful ethereal clouds. Um, and we didn't know that that happened on Mars until we actually saw it with the rover. So that was really cool. And we've also done things like we've measured the radiation that's coming to the surface. Again, you know, thinking ahead to future human exploration of the planet and found some interesting results. When we get close to really big buttes or rock formations, we can actually get a big measure of the drop in the radiation because the rocks are very effectively shielding the rover. I think that's a pretty cool result too.
0: I did have a sort of little schematic of its path, uh, both in terms of its tracking uh, from from a vertical from a top down perspective and it's not quite straight line it's very circuitous um and then from <laughs> the side view seeing the elevation that it's trying to traverse there's some decent elevation there's some deep steep gradient that it is currently working through if i'm if i'm correct is there a limit to uh, curiosity's ability to climb mountains so to speak yeah,
1: well it depends on the kind of terrain about how steep the slope is. When we're on really good nice bedrock terrain, um we can get up to slopes of about oh 30 or I think 31 degrees is our maximum slope that we climbed. We were trying to kind of climb up onto this big plateau to study the rocks on the top and you know, we weren't sure we were going to make it, but we did and it was very cool. Um it gets a lot harder if you get sandy sand covered terrain um and you know you start to slip and skid a little bit more so those slopes are more challenging but yeah we think we're going to be able to climb this mountain we're climbing it's a five kilometer high mountain uh that's in the middle of this crater and we've gone up about i think 1400 meters so far so we've gone a decent ways but we still sorry 1400 feet not meters Um, we've gone a decent way uh but still got a ways to climb
0: now it's lasted since 2012 is it expected to last a lot longer and and of course not so long ago a couple of years ago uh, you lost a couple others but the battery powers basically died and you couldn't get it recharged again if i'm if that's correct yeah Um, what's the story with curiosity are you expecting it to give you another another number of years of life or uh, yeah what's what's the prognosis
1: yeah. So, I mean, the answer is we never know. Um, something could break tomorrow and that would be the end of the mission. When something breaks on Mars, you can't go send a tech to repair it. Um, but we try to be very careful with how we run the rover and, and it was really well designed. So we're hoping, knock on wood, it will keep going. And if all goes well, we are still hoping we're going to have a good, hopefully, five, 10 years still. Um The limiting factor for sure is going to be the way curiosity is powered um, previous Mars rovers were powered by solar energy. Um, and that was a problem when there were big dust storms and that blacked out the sun, but curiosity is powered by radioactive source. Um, and we use the, basically the decay of plutonium to power the Rover. Um, and so we can actually really model that how that source will degrade over time. And so that can tell us about five, 10 years before we're not going to have enough uh, energy to run the Rover anymore.
0: I know that uh, I read that the curiosity was actually named after a competition that NASA ran for for students and uh, a, a girl named Clara May wrote uh, this response she was the winner and she wrote curiosity is an everlasting flame that burns in everyone's mind it makes me get out of bed in the morning and wonder what surprises life what surprises life will throw at me that day. Curiosity is such a powerful force. Without it, we wouldn't be able to be where we are today. Curiosity is the passion that drives us through our everyday lives. We become explorers and scientists with our need to ask questions and to wonder. Now, I think that's a nice way. I would say that curiosity is really what's driven you, that really started you at a very early age. And your dad had something to do with your interest in astronomy. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, man, I'll just say, I haven't heard that essay for a very long time. What a wonderful sentiment. I love the name Curiosity. Um, Yeah, but as a person, you know, I've always been very curious. I've always loved science, um, all kinds of science. In particular, though, I've had an affinity for space. I love looking at the stars. I love television shows like Star Trek growing up. Um, And it was really uh, one night my dad actually brought home a telescope and we set it up you know it's very small telescope we set it up on our front steps and i got to see saturn through a telescope for the first time and when you look at even through a small telescope you can see saturn but also the rings of saturn and it just blew my mind that i i my eyeball was looking directly at the rings of saturn you know the photons were going straight from saturn to me it wasn't a picture it wasn't a video and it was so cool. And, you know, all of a sudden it became a place and all the planets became places and places you could explore. And I I wanted to learn more and I wanted to learn what do they look like when you get up closer? You know, my view had improved from going just the naked eye to a telescope. How much better can it get? And um, I would say that that was a major influence on sparking my curiosity for space exploration.
0: Now, you then went into high school and you had wanted to explore your passion for astronomy. And you, I read also that at the time you had the other Mars Rovers uh, land on Mars and that really sparked your interest. Did that drive your subject selections when you went into university? Was it like, oh, I know exactly what I want to do?
1: Yes, with an asterisk. Um... So yeah, I was in in high school, I was 16 years old, and I actually got to uh, participate as an outreach program that allowed me to fly out to California and actually be in the room at JPL when the opportunity rover landed with all the scientists. And the whole experience was so incredible. And it made me realize that you could have a job driving rovers on Mars and looking at the rocks and then understanding what they meant. And so it was really in high school that I decided, this is what I want to do. Um, When I went to college, it still really was the career path I wanted to pursue, but there was a little piece of me that thought, well, unless I find something I like more and, or unless, you know, is this actually a possibility? There's not always that many rovers on Mars. What's gonna, the future gonna be like? So I went to a liberal arts college. Um, I I took a lot of classes in geology and in physics, and I always had the aim of, of driving rovers on Mars, but I also took things like theater and English and psychology because um, they were interesting. At the end of the day, I didn't find anything I thought was cooler than driving rovers on Mars. And so that's what I continued to pursue.
0: You say continue to pursue. Tell us a little bit how you ended up on the Curiosity team.
1: So I became involved in Curiosity as a graduate student. And what happened was my advisor was actually selected to become part of the science team. And he pulled me along with him. Um, And as for part of my graduate thesis, I spent time looking at some of the orbital data over where Curiosity was going to be driving. And I made some discoveries about the rocks as they appeared from orbit on Mount Sharp, um, the mountain that Curiosity is climbing and that was such a fun experience because not only was I getting to do real research that impacted questions the rover was going to ask and where it was going to drive, I got to be really embedded with the science team, especially for the first three months after landing, um, helping to run the rover and make the decisions about where we wanted to drive and, and what observations we wanted to make, even as a graduate student. And I just sort of stayed involved Um Even after I graduated, I got my job at JPL, was still involved. I was selected to become a member of the team in my own right at that point. Um, And then flash forward a couple of years, I got to help actually lead the campaign when we explored that area that I had studied for my graduate thesis, which was the most fun thing I've ever gotten to do. Um, And uh, now I'm here kind of helping coordinate the whole science team and helping the science of the mission hopefully be the best that it can be.
0: If I do a quick Google search of your name, I'll find a host of videos of you actually doing exactly what you're doing now, talking about your work and about your passion, uh, communicating good science to not only uh, budding astronomers, but high school students, younger students and the general public. Clearly science communication is something you're also passionate about. Why?
1: Oh, uh, well, First of all, I'm just really excited about what I get to do every day. And I want to share it with everyone because I think it's so cool. And and hopefully others think it's so cool. Um, You know, science is useless if you can't communicate what you're doing um, and you can't share what you're doing. You can discover the coolest thing and no one would know. Um, I also love doing it because you know, I remember what it was like when I was in, in elementary school and middle school and high school and the things that I saw and that inspired me and the people who reached out to talk to me about what they did and support me. And so I'm I'm hopeful that this is interesting to some people and and there might be students watching who realize that, you know, driving rovers on Mars is a thing that you can do and they're equally inspired.
0: I imagine too, whereas you communicate with people, people come up to you and ask you lots of questions um, and some really good questions that you obviously then spend 10 minutes talking with them and some sort of maybe funny questions in terms of because of your work with Mars. What are some of the uh, funny anecdotes, stories that you sometimes get when people ask about your work?
1: Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's always creative ideas. Um, Sometimes people really want to know: Is there, you know, really is there life on Mars? Are you not telling us anything? Um, trust me, if there was life on Mars, we we wouldn't be able to hold it in. We'd want to share it. We'd be so excited. Um, I, yeah. I, sometimes people come up with ideas. Um, sometimes they're really great ideas. Sometimes they're totally goofy uh and and you know it's kind of hard to be like oh that's an interesting thought um but you know i always appreciate that people are curious and interested and uh, try to have fun with it most of the time that people come up and they have really
0: good questions Uh, maybe a few references to hg wells yeah
1: and um, science fiction movies um Got questions about whether or not we could be like avid, like the James Cameron avatar and send ourselves to Mars and why aren't we developing technology to do that? Um, that
0: was an interesting one. On a slightly serious note, and you sort of semi-touched on that, uh, is that you might get some people who clearly have a bee in their bonnet. They have some sort of conspiracy theory, some sort of idea, you know, we're being hoodwinked and so forth. Uh, how do you handle those people who clearly have poor understanding of science, but have clearly a... I mean, I'm not talking about the, the people who clearly have a, a beef to grind, but clearly come to you with questions, but clearly their scientific understanding uh, you know, leaves a lot to be desired. How do you handle those situations?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's hard. Hopefully, this isn't usually the case, but sometimes if people come like that and they come with open minds, you know, that's the best case scenario where they think something and they, you know, please tell me that this isn't true. And when you tell them something truthful, they say, oh, that's great. Um, A lot of the times though, some people like that have beliefs and they're going to be unwilling to change their beliefs, no matter how much scientific evidence you show them. That's really hard. And I'm going to be honest and say, I don't really know how to, how to approach that. And, and sometimes I just say, okay, well, it was nice talking to you and, and divert the energy elsewhere.
0: Well, I was actually speaking to Don Lincoln about this very clear question. I think you can't necessarily engage with people who aren't going to change their minds and you do exactly what you want and say, thank you very much and move on. Our job as, and you know, in my little way, and of course, in your way is hopefully we have these people who have open minds and are willing to listen and therefore change their minds to give them a sense of uh, what is the truth in terms of science content
1: so yeah and hopefully you hopefully you learn skills the younger you start learning the skills about how to critically ask questions and you know answer them and understand the answers the better off I think you're going to be
0: now let's uh, move on to those students who are thinking of a career in science um, I'm sure you you meet a lot of those types of students what advice would you give those students?
1: Well, first of all, right on great career. (laughs) Um, yeah, my, my career advice usually to people is uh, pursue what makes you happy and pursue what you're passionate about. And, you know, for me, how I got into what I was doing, it was really just because I loved it and I thought it was really fun. And there are so many ways to get into science. Um, And, you know, find the way that's fun to you. You don't have to get into science in one particular way. You know, you don't need to be an astrophysicist, physics major, math proof writer. Um, Creative people are needed in science in a way that they might be artistic or really good writers. Um, So there's all sorts of things that you can do. And I think as long as you find what you like doing, it's going to help you be good at what you like doing um, and will help you to continue to pursue what you want
0: to do. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Uh, historically, physics has always had a bad rap uh, in terms of gender balance. That's just the historical thing. But it's my understanding that if a girl wants to get into STEM physics and specifically astrophysics, it's really the place to go. There's been, there's a lot of opportunities uh, for for women in science, particularly in STEM and and in your field of astronomy.
1: Well, I sure hope so. You're not wrong that the gender balance is is way off. Um, And I hope it's getting better. I think it's getting better. I think there's still a long way to go. But the reason we need all kinds of people in STEM fields, you know, all genders, all races, all everything, it's because... We need the creativity that people with different perspectives bring to the table. We're trying to answer some of the hardest questions that have ever been asked that we just, as humanity, don't know the answers to. And the only way we're gonna have any luck at getting to that is by bringing as many brains in who think in all different sorts of ways to be able to answer those questions.
0: Again, on a slightly uh, personal note, um, Curiosity, you say, may last five to 10 years. Are you forward thinking about what the opportunities are like for you beyond that?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to help drive curiosity forever because I love it. Um, But it's, you know, thinking ahead, what's next in Mars exploration and in planetary exploration, what are the questions we want to answer? One of the things I'm really excited about is the helicopter Uh, that recently flew, a tech demo along with the Perseverance rover that just landed. And so some of the conversations I've been having with people at JPL and elsewhere is, okay, well, what if we sent a bigger helicopter with science instruments on it? What would we measure? Where would we go? So that's been fun to think about. Um, I'm working on some instruments that will hopefully fly to the moon one day, perhaps, perhaps. Um, to to study you know what the moon's made of, how it formed. Um, there's an upcoming Japanese mission that's gonna go to the moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos, um, which are so weird and they're a whole discussion in and of itself, but that, that's gonna be a great mission. Um, yeah, and then NASA and ESA just announced that they're gonna be sending three missions to Venus in the coming decade. Um, and Venus is equally fascinating um, I think as a case study in how planets form and evolve, you know, we've got three in our solar system to look at Venus, Earth, and Mars. One's too hot, one's too cold, one's just right. So let's spend some time looking at the one that's too hot and understand why.
0: And I think the coming years will be really exciting in terms of what we learn uh, in terms of both Venus and in terms of Mars. I mean, We're still very early days. You talk about the helicopter. And people don't really realize the engineering challenge of getting a helicopter to work in such a thin atmosphere and send them to say, okay, let's build one that is bigger and better because it can carry also instrumentations is a huge engineering challenge, I am sure. But the opportunities that might arise from that to give it such much more freedom to to travel around, you know, you're not terrestrially based would be absolutely exciting. Do you see the uh, making good progress in the next 10, 15 years on that? front?
1: I have so. Yeah, it's totally nuts that it works. <laughs> but, you know, when you looked at the flights for a rover on a good day, we'll drive 60 meters, 70 meters, maybe it'll take us an hour and a half. The helicopter went like 100 meters in two minutes. So just wrapping your head around the scales of exploration and how they'd be bigger by orders of magnitude and the ability to go up and down these cliff walls, which as a geologist, you love to look at, is mind-blowing. And so trying to think about how that opens up the parameter space for how you can explore the planet is really exciting.
0: Clearly, you're totally obsessed with anything about planetary science, which is a fantastic thing, but you've hinted already that you have other interests as well. Is there something you could share with us that uh, is something that is a passion about uh, for you? In other words, maybe teach us something that is a little bit outside the box, but Gives us a sense of your other interests.
1: Oh, well, this past year, um, I have been doing a lot of hiking. Um, There's a beautiful mountain range, you know, right outside LA, they call the San Gabriel Mountains that have been very close. And I've done my first backpacking trips, overnight backpacking trips, um, further out, which was really fun. Um, I'm also really into cooking. I've been doing a lot of cooking and making delicious dishes from all different kinds of cuisines, uh, Spanish Mediterranean. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. And then I guess another, another interesting interest, I haven't done it for a few years now, but it's still a part of me and hopefully I'll get back to it one day is, um, fencing. I was on the fencing team in undergraduate. I fenced Epe, which is one of the three fencing weapons,
0: um, And so that is that's great fun tell us a little bit more about epping how does that work
1: yeah so uh fencing there's three different kinds of uh weapons in fencing that you can use one's epee one's foil and one's saber each have different rules about where you can hit somebody on the body and how you do the hit um epee is the most fun because it's the most free form the whole body is valid target area from your head to your toes um and it's a point weapon so you you stab them you don't slash them and it's sort of whoever hits first gets the point um so it's 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 great fun
0: now one last fun question your twitter uh handle says you're a muppet aficionado tell us a little bit more about the muppets
1: oh yes (laughs) i love the muppets i actually have a muppet that looks like me (laughs) Got made at FAO Schwartz. Um, no, I just love the Muppets because I think they are brilliant. I think the humor that they have is just so sweet and simple and pure and so perfect. And I love that you know, they're all so different from one another. They have such different personalities and sometimes it leads to conflict, which is hilarious sometimes. But at the end of the day, you can tell they all really love and respect each other and they come together and they make these beautiful shows. And um, I, that just really resonates with me. And I think
0: it's just great. Who's your favorite?
1: Good question. Again, it's hard they're all so different. I think I really like Rolf the dog. Um, I think he's the most underrated Muppet. He has very wise things to say a lot of the time, and other times he just makes really stupid jokes <laughs> that I find hilarious.
0: Actually, Rolf is my one of my favorites. Actually, as well, he's 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 probably got the 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 least. Uh, Uh, of personality issues. He's not a control freak. He hasn't anxiety issues. He is not worked to the bone like Kermit is. He just goes with the flow. Um, The only other one that's basically like that, but it's clearly he's got issues is animal, but that's another story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, animal's fantastic.
0: (laughs) So do you have, do you have a favorite, favorite one? Uh, I would say actually, Rolf is actually my favorite for that very reason that you, uh, I mentioned. And um, I, I'm probably more like Fozzie in terms of funny and but insecure and so forth. But that's why I actually like Rolf because that's the sort of the person I would like to be. So, you know, just self assured and and just everything goes with the flow, you know, um, you know, particularly when it's uh, in, in the surgery. <laughs> so. <Yes. laughs> so you have a Muppet that actually looks like you. Do you have it? Well, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, so this this is this is Muppet Abby. She's a scientist too. When my hair sometimes it's down, it's curly. So she, I think Hello.
0: <laughs> that, clearly she has Hello. she's got a cold. Her nose is a little bit red.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, it's a Muppet nose and then she went. I don't know if you can see. The Muppet Institute of Technology, of course.
0: <laughs> well, Abby, it's been wonderful having a chat with you and learning a little bit more about your work in, uh, with Curiosity. And what really comes through is you're very passionate about your science. And uh, I found you very engaging. And I am hoping that as people listen and people watch, that they get a a, a sense of how exciting your job is and how exciting the work that you're doing on Mars. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I had so much fun speaking with you today. This was great.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to get notifications of upcoming interviews. And you can find me on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter at Physics High. My name is Paul from Physics High. Till next time.